You'll turn in your Bibles that you have to 2 Thessalonians, or open up your app, whatever, uh, but if you'll turn to 2 Thessalonians, The first phrase of Charles Dickens' novel, The Tale of Two Cities, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. What a uh, telling story here, a love story, a love drama, and the time of opposites. Probably a lot of us read that when we were young, probably went over our heads what was uh, going on there in that drama that he wrote, but it was a time, it was a love story, but also in a time of the French Revolution of tyranny. So the whole story is about opposites, love and war. There is London at the time of peace, and there was Paris in a time of war and the revolution. There was the upper class, there was the lower class, there was good, there was evil, but they were opposites. And when I read this portion of Scripture, I'm at a time of affliction, a time of suffering for the Thessalonian church. I, I think we often, at least I do, tend to think in times of that there's good times, <laughs> there's the worst of times. I think of them as opposites. At various times, at various days, depending on what's happening, I, I, I separate them in my mind, much like that drama that he wrote, that Dickens wrote. Well, here the church of Thessalonica is going through a time of afflictions, and it's, uh, it's ramping up, it's getting more intense, it's like the worst of times for this church, and yet... The Spirit of God through Paul writes them and encourages them that actually it's the best of times in the worst of times. They're not polar opposites because all times are before God, designed by God. And so I want us to take a look at a little background here before I read the portion. We're just not going to look at the whole letter, just the first part of this letter. Uh, Paul wrote this in one of his earliest writings. Both of these letters were early in Paul's ministry. But this church started back in Acts 17. He had just left Philippi in Acts uh, 16. So five-day journey over to Thessalonica, And there was a warm reception, if you remember back at Paul's journeys, there was a warm reception initially. People were coming to know Christ, and then it wasn't very long until they were run out of town. And there was affliction that started right in. And back in the first letter, uh, in chapter 1, it says, you were born in affliction. The church was born in affliction, and now it's still in it, and it's ramping up. It's getting more intense There are three major points that Paul is addressing in this letter, the second letter to the Thessalonian church. Three things. The first was there was a time of discouragement. They were confused on when Christ was returning. Uh, They were confused. They thought they would go be with the Lord, and here they are getting more intense, and there was a false letter being circulated, 
which is the second thing that Paul addresses. Uh, there was some false teaching, uh, misinforming God's people uh, that they were already in the end times. They were in the time of God's wrath, and maybe they weren't worthy uh, to get in uh, and go into the Lord's kingdom. So he corrects that in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, he addresses another issue of people not working. They were idle, and he's correcting that in chapter 3 of this letter. So I'm going to only look at the first part, uh, and if you'll follow along, I'm going to read the first, uh, what will be the first chapter, but I'm only going to be looking at verses 3 through 12. So Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well uh, as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. That's all one sentence, by the way. Uh, Now, uh, he prays. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there's two major points I just want to bring up. And it, again, it, the time doesn't allow to go through every uh, word and, uh, that you're used to of uh, expositional preaching like that. I'm going to hit a couple of points from this passage uh, that I just read. The first is that we should always be giving thanks to God for our brothers and sisters when there is healthy spiritual growth in their lives, verses 3 and 4. We, I'm not the apostle or a son of one, but this is important instruction of encouraging the brethren. We should always be giving thanks to God for our brothers and sisters when there is healthy spiritual growth in their lives, and, and they should know it. We should let our brothers and sisters know this. And for Paul, the Apostle Paul, this wasn't unusual to give thanks to the people he's writing. It, he pretty much opens up his letters with thanksgiving for the people. 
He does that even in the church at Corinth, that he has all kinds of issues and problems with that kind of drove him to his knees and kept him on his knees, that church did. But Paul here goes a little bit more, where he, it's kind of an unusual thing. He says, this is, this is the right thing to do. Uh, he's like, we're obligated. I'm obligated to give thanks to God and to appreciate you all and for you all to know that. Edmund Heber, in his commentary, says, power of appreciation is a real test of character. We should be known for appreciating what God's doing in people's lives and let them know that. We go, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I think that often for different people, but do you tell them? Do you thank God and do you tell them? Some years ago, matter of fact, it was about 14 years ago, uh, several of our immediate family members, uh, the Lord took them home to be with himself, both of our dads and my brother. And there were things said at the funeral. Different people would stand up and, as you know, give eulogies and how much this individual meant to them and how God used them in their lives. And I can remember sitting there from one of the, especially with my dad, but um, with the others as well. And my mom leaned over and she said, I wish, I wish they could have heard that. All of the things said about them. To, she just said, it would have encouraged them. I mean, why is it at eulogies? We tell about the individual and how God used them and how thankful we are. It's after they're gone. And I thought, I'm not going to do that. I I remember going home and writing all things I appreciate about my mom, and I told her. (laughs) We need to be always thanking God and appreciating one another, what God's doing in their life and growing in spiritual maturity. Uh, Verses 3 and 4 here. And uh, Paul wasn't seeking commendation for himself here. This is not a selfie. Paul wasn't saying, you know, and by the way, I planted the church. (laughs) Paul's not even thinking about himself. He's just thinking about the Lord and what God's doing in other people's lives. And such a, uh, an, open, um, an opening by him when he says, this is just, I'm obligated to say these things, not just to thank God, but to let them know while they're even alive. And it was easy for Paul to give thanks, and he gives two reasons here in verse 3. He said, it's, I ought always to give thanks to God for your brothers, as is right, because, two, two things, because your faith is growing abundantly, and secondly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Uh, this verb that he uses here, growing abundantly, he only uses once in the New Testament. It's only used once, not just by him, but uh, it only shows up once. It means the, the compound of this word is super growth. These Thessalonians were growing like super growth, their faith. Right in a time of intense affliction and intense persecutions, it was the worst of times that they were in. But they were growing with super growth. Right in the midst. It's not the worst of times, best of times. It was the best of times in the worst of times. This growth was inner growth. 
One wonders how trials and persecutions are going to affect people. But these storms strengthen their faith rather than destroying their faith. Dr. MacArthur says persecution will destroy false faith. But true faith grows in times of affliction. And so that means that these Thessalonians were, boy, they were in the word. They were meditating on the word. They were applying the word. They were in prayer. They were fellowshipping one another because that's how we grow in our faith. Those are the means of grace, the disciplines, the spiritual disciplines of grace. That's how we grow. God's spirit helps us grow. He won't obey for us, but he will help us grow. So we know if they're growing like super faith here, I mean super growth in their faith, they were in the word, applying the word in their life, they were in prayer, and they were fellowshipping one with another. Leon Morris, because dealing with suffering, how we think of suffering versus how they were thinking about suffering, he writes this in his commentary, Leon Morris. He says, the New Testament does not look on suffering in quite the same way as we do, uh, as do most uh, modern people. To us, it is in itself an evil, something to be avoided at all costs. Now, while the New Testament does not gloss over this aspect of suffering, it does not lose sight either of the fact that in the good providence of God, suffering is often the means of working out God's eternal purpose. It develops in the sufferers qualities of character. It teaches valuable lessons. Suffering is not thought of as something which may possibly be avoided by the Christian. For him, it is inevitable. In 1 Thessalonians 3.3, he is ordained to it. He must live out his life and develop his Christian character in a world which is dominated by non-Christian ideas. His faith is not some fragile thing to be kept in a kind of spiritual cotton wool, insulated from all shocks. It's robust. It is to be manifested in the fires of trouble, in the furnace of affliction. And not only is it to be manifested there, but in part, at any rate, it is to be fashioned in such places. The very troubles and afflictions which the world heaps on the believer become, under God, the means of making him what he ought to be. Suffering, when we have come to regard it in this light, is not to be thought of as evidence that God has forsaken us, but as evidence that God is with us. Well, we do have a different view of suffering. We think the worst of times, and we separate it from, this could be the best of times. In our growth in faith, the super growth in faith. Well, that's the first reason. Their faith was like super growth, that's inner, and then it went out. The second reason he's giving thanks and appreciating them is their love for anyone, for everyone was increasing. Love was going out. This verb is different than going deep in super growth. This is it's going out like a flood. It's covering. It's, it's increasing going outward. It's interesting that faith and love 
rise together and they sort of decrease together. Faith and love in the New Testament are inseparably hinged. One commentary commentary said they comprehended faith and love, comprehend the whole total Christian walk. You find them mentioned in couplets and various passages in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 7. Galatians 5, verse 6. Ephesians 1.15, it says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Faith and love. And again, in, in Ephesians 3, verse 17, chapter 6, verse 2, 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. They, they go together. Faith goes deep in our trust and love for the Lord, and then love goes out. Paul acknowledges their steadfastness, their faith. He says in verse 4, when you look at this, it's in, it's in all your persecutions, and it's in the afflictions that you are enduring. The best times should be in the worst of times. The best of times are not opposite. They're not polar opposites. It's in these times that our faith really grows. I remember one theologian saying, I, I, he wonders if he ever grows outside of affliction. We tend to coast and get sleepy when there isn't a trial. But God designs these to make us and form Christ's likeness in our life. Now, I've touched base here, as I mentioned, uh, pretty much every year. Uh, they've been really gracious inviting me back. And each time I come, I witness this, the the growth uh, of your faith, especially on the Saturdays when I'm in training, I'm talking to different people, a lot of you that are there. Uh, I just see the, the deepening of your faith, and I watch and I listen, and I, I see the love of everyone. It just seems to be growing. And I, I'm so thankful to God for what he's doing here. Um, and I wanted you to hear that. Paul's going, You're, I'm obligated, he says, to tell you that. And I feel that obligation too. We don't hear it enough. And when you see a brother or sister in Christ growing in their faith, reaching out in love, and, and it, we're in difficult times, let them know. Don't say, well, thank you, Lord, and you don't say anything to them. Don't wait for a eulogy. Tell them. Encourage them. They'll take it as, well, thank you, Lord, that you're, you're growing my faith, you're helping me to reach out in love, and all glory will go to the Lord because that's where it belongs, that from him, by him, and to him belong all things. That's the first point. The second is that we should always be encouraging one another with the Lord's soon return and his righteous judgment, verses 5 through 7. And then he has the prayer at the end on how we can even do this. But we should always be encouraging one another with the Lord's soon return and his righteous judgment. You know, I've often thought there's such discrepancies among God's people on when is the Lord going to return. And so people get divided on 
whether it's uh, the pre-trib, post-trib, whether the pre-mill, on-mill, and they get all in these different views of the end times. And so you find a lot of God's people not talking about it much. It's like, well, you have different views, and we just uh, we don't want to do that. There's five views on everything, as if God stuttered. But no, it is a ploy of the evil one. Our hope is, should be fixed on Christ's soon return. First Peter 1, verse 13. Fix your hope on the soon return of Christ. I, I think the Lord, uh, Satan would want us not thinking, setting our minds on things above and waiting for the Lord to return. And he who has this hope in him will purify himself. I mean, it's all linked together. This is encouraging to God's people in difficult times. In the light of all of the injustices that are going on in our life, all will be made right. All will be made right. It's hard living today and seeing the injustices. You just had a funeral here of a situation that was just an injustice of what happened to this young woman. And you're going, will there be justice in in our country on this one? And we, every day you turn on the TV. Well, I was prepping for this several weeks ago, I, <laughs> this message. I picked up a commentary, uh, commentary by John Phillips written about 20 years ago. And he writes this. It sounds like he's living today. 20 years ago. And he says, we feel instinctively that in spite of all the terrible uh, wrongs and evils about us, this is a moral universe. The wickedness, injustice, oppressions, and deceptions of men demand a day of judgment. Quite apart from atrocities, persecutions, and holocausts, quite apart from wars and the ruthless wickedness of international terror and organized crime, quite apart from murder, rape, arson, prostitution, sodomy, frauds, abortion, child abuse, drug trafficking, and the like, there are countless petty lusts, hatreds, spites, and lies that are part of everyday life for millions of people. Lives are blasted. Homes are divided. People are cheated. A drunk driver causes an accident. People are killed and maimed, and the courts simply slap his wrists and excuse him. A young man seduces a young girl, abandons her to her shame, laughs, and seeks another conquest. Someone drops some dope in a friend's drink deliberately to hook him on drugs. The friend is ruined and the law sleeps. A husband contracts some foul sexual disease and gives it to his wife. Little ones are bruised and bullied. No one interferes. Children are taught God-denying and soul-destroying and life-ruining philosophies in school while the government applauds. The list is endless. By far, the majority of wrongs are never righted in this life. Our sense of justice, quite apart from divine revelation, tells us there has to be a day of judgment. And he goes on to talk about other evil leaders throughout the world and he just says there has to be a day of judgment 
And he says the other side of the coin is just as positive. Every day, deeds of care and compassion go unnoticed and unacknowledged, and still less are they rewarded down here. There has to be a judgment day. And God's word assures us there is going to be one. All wrongs will be made right. All rights will be rewarded. And so we see here, we should be encouraging one another with the Lord's soon return in his righteous judgment. And verse 7, there is going to be a rest for those who are in Christ. There's going to be rest coming. Heaven's called rest. It'll be rest for the righteous, for those who are in Christ, that the righteousness of Christ put to their account. But there will be a righteous judgment coming for the unrighteous. They will be punished, verses 8 through 10. This is a, a judgment, a final judgment before the lake of fire. All wrongs suffered and service of God will be righted. They will be repaid. God is going to repay them. There's going to be vengeance upon them. That's what this passage is talking about. And it was meant to encourage God's children. With all of the injustices going on, things will be made right. And he speaks to two different groups here. There are those who do not know God, in verse 8. And there are those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord. They're both unbelievers. They're both unsaved, both groups here. But one maybe never heard the gospel. The other heard it and wouldn't obey it. But both sections of the unrighteous, they will be punished. They will be banished from the Lord's presence. The absence of anything positive. There'll be nothing positive in their lives for eternity, their souls for eternity. There'll be nothing. There'll be endless torment. So now's the day. Now's the day of salvation. Now's the day to humble yourself if you're not in Christ and ask God for grace and mercy. Repent of your sins. Turn to him for salvation. He loves to save And you say, well, I have too much sin. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And for the righteous, in verse 10, they will be rewarded. There's glorification coming. Christ is going to be glorified in us, and we will be glorified in him. But it will be all about him. He will be glorified in us, and we will be glorified in him. The followers of Christ will fix their attention on the glorious future. Suffering is well worth it in prospect of the future with Christ. This is the best of times in the worst of times. Don't think about this time when you look at what's going on around us. And I think persecution's cramp, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely ramping up. And there's even articles being written about it as if, this tarries if the Lord doesn't return for his church soon. It's going to get, it's going to ramp up. And you're going, this is the worst of times. Yes, but it can be the best of times. And so that's what the Lord was helping these brothers and sisters at that time there in Thessalonica. They needed help with the timing of everything. They were confused, and so 
The Spirit of God through Paul helps correct that. There is the rapture that's talked about for his church, Christ coming for his church in 1 Thessalonians. But 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is talking, this is what it's going to be like when he comes back, the second coming, the end of the tribulation time. So they needed encouragement. How is it even possible to view the worst of times as the best of times in the worst of times? How can you do this? Verses 11 and 12 is the prayer of Paul. And when you go down and look at those two verses, uh, that, that God may make you worthy, that's passive. He will make you worthy. You don't, you're not worthy in of yourself. And you heard Pastor Shane talk about that from Isaiah and uh, our, our rags are filthy. He makes us worthy with the righteousness of Christ. The, he will make you worthy, God says to the Thessalonian believers who are in him, and it's going to be by his power at the end of verse 11. It's by his power. It's by his grace And verse 12. That's how it's done. One writer writes, participants in God's righteous judgment fall into these two classes. For one, that would be the unrighteous, the future holds the most severe threat. Though though their domination is tolerated for the present, when the proper time comes, the roles will be reversed. The second class, the believers, though under the heel of the other for the moment, will become the overcomers who will enjoy all privileges in God's kingdom. Just two takeaways, really, from the text from this morning, is we ought always to be giving thanks to God and appreciating our brothers and sisters where their faith is growing deep, abundantly, super growth, and their love is going out. You're in a a church here with so many people who love Jesus. Their faith, your faith is growing deep. Your love is going out. Let one another know. Encourage them. And also, Point two, verses five to ten, encourage one another with the Lord's coming back. The Lord is coming back. And in the first letter, first Thessalonians one, verse nine, they turn from idols to serve the true and living God, comma. That's not all they did. And the next verse ten says, and they were waiting for the Lord's return. They were busy going out, doing the work of the gospel, ministries. But they had turned from idols to serve the true and living God and were waiting for the Lord to return. That is our mindset. Encourage one another. The Lord's coming back and it could be imminent at any time. So encourage one another with the Lord's return. Richard Baxter said, if you're not heavenly minded, you'll be of no earthly good. Some years ago, I was complaining about an ongoing worst time in my life kind of thing. I wasn't vocal about it, but a brother in Christ before a class one night 
I've known him for years, and he was taking my class, and he was just before class asking me how things were going, and I opened up, uh, like, this is the worst time. This is the worst time. (laughs) And he said, yeah, I've been there. He said, I've been there thinking about, like, it's the worst time, and I'm wanting the best of times over here, like Polar. And he said a couple verses encouraged his life, and mainly from a book he read, uh, expounding on these two verses written by a Puritan named Thomas Boston. The book is entitled The Crook and the Lot, uh, English phrase, A Crooked Path. So I looked it up Thomas Boston. The guy gave me a book, uh, this book. Thomas Boston grew up in extreme poverty in Scotland back in the late 1600s. Uh, his dad was put in prison as a nonconformist, and he said even as a youth, he would go to prison to see his dad and sleep there in the evenings on the floor to be with his dad. His mom died early, and Thomas Boston had numerous health issues himself. When he started pastoring, he was converted at age 12, but when he started pastoring, it was a really tough go at pastoring. Ministry can be really hard. He wasn't warmly accepted when he would stand up for what was right. His wife, she struggled with numerous health issues, personal distresses, as a biographer wrote, domestic trials. They had 10 children. Six of them died in early childhood. The worst of times. That's what he was thinking, the worst of times. Then he's reading... Working through the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and it says this, Consider the work of God. I think in the ESV it says, this is the Lord's doing. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? God. You can't straighten what God has made crooked. This is God's doing. The worst of times is his doing. He's over this. He's not the author of evil, but this is his times, and he's the best of times and the worst of times. It goes on to say, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider this, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. You live in the moment. You do what's next. Thomas Boston grasped the sovereignty of God, the love of God, the wisdom of God, displayed in the affections, afflictions of men to grow us into Christ's likeness until he returns. His last words that we have recorded was, he said, I bless my God in Jesus Christ that ever he made me a Christian and took an early dealing with my soul that ever he made me a minister of the gospel and gave me true insight into the doctrine of his grace. Right now, the best of times can be in the worst of times. Through our faith in Christ and as we reach out and love for one another, thanks be to God for the faith he has graced us with, for the work of the Spirit that's in, in, working in us. It's by his power, and it's for his glory. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you. Uh, Thank you for this uh, opportunity to read your word, to think and ponder on it. Some might think the sermon's just ended, but in fact, it's just beginning. Help us to meditate on your word, even today, in the various persecutions, maybe various afflictions that we are in. May we not think of them as polar opposites, the best of times and the worst of times, but help us, even as the church here at Thessalonica, we're being taught the best of times are in the worst of times, when our eyes are fixed on Jesus. Help us to encourage one another as they're growing in their faith, their love is increasing towards one another. Help us to tell one another that. And may we not forget our Lord and Savior is coming soon. Help us to fix our hope on the revelation of Christ soon to be here where all will be made right. All will be made right. We thank you, Lord, for your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.